that wonderful image in Zechariah of, uh, of course, the, the verse we know, right? Not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. And the image there is of olive trees, literally mainlining the oil of anointing, the spirit, into the church through golden pipes. It is though there is a menorah, if you think of that, that Jewish lamp, right? Being constantly fed and nourished as uh, branches uh, connected to the vine. And we see uh, the Apostle Paul now in Ephesians chapter 5 talking about how we, dear Christians, you and I, are members of the body of Christ and filled by the Spirit in a remarkable and powerful way. As we pick up now in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, we are going to focus a a little bit of attention, special attention, on, on what the Apostle means by being filled with or by the Spirit. Uh, with or by the Spirit, and that is in verse 18. But I also want to remember where we're at, right? The Apostle has said, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were made alive together with Christ. Therefore, he has exhorted us to walk according to this new life. The old man has been put off, put away. The new man has been granted to us. We have been joined to him by faith. We are no longer darkness. We are children of light. And so it's in that spirit that he now sets forth two ways of walking in the world. The way of wisdom and the way of folly. This is God's word. Um, I'm going to start reading at verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, Because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery. But be filled by the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Thus far, uh, the reading of God's holy word. Join me now in our prayer for illumination, which can be found in our worship bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And ask you to give us your spirit so that we might understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. I know there are a few perceptive ones out there who heard me uh, read, maybe you didn't know if it was intentional, uh, a slightly different word in verse, chapter 5, verse 18. Any show of hands? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, you're all sleeping. It's all right. It's early. Um, I read, and I usually flag this ahead of time, but I read... That um, I'm on the wrong page. To not get drunk with this wine, but to be filled by the Spirit. By the Spirit. Our ESV has with the Spirit. Um, prepositions are, are funny things. Um, a slight illustration of the difference, perhaps, between by or with or in. Uh, during the lockdowns of 2020, 
my family decided to make our backyard a bit of an outdoor retreat. I know this wasn't an original idea. A lot of people did this kind of thing. Um, but we, we drove uh, to uh, a special target down in Springfield, and we found the last inflatable pool on the shelf. And so we brought it home, and it was a nice, really big one. I can, I can get on an inner tube and float in the middle of the pool about two inches from each of the edges. And I could be out at sea if I closed my eyes. Um, we got a nice fire pit. And so we, we filled up, inflated this pool, and we took the garden hose, and we filled it up, and the water, is, predictably, was quite cold. And we tried to, like, boil water and bring out buckets of hot water from inside, and it was a whole uh, learning process. And then I figured out I could take the hose from our outdoor spigot, and it was just long enough that I could go through our basement door and get to our utility sink in the laundry space and actually fill the, the pool with warm water. Like I could like clamp it to a chair. I could walk away, do something else while it filled. So big success, right? So here's the question. Was the inflatable pool being filled with water or with a hose? Uh, prepositions. Uh, was it being filled with water or by a hose? Um, young boys, if you want to be a pastor and think about prepositions all week long to preach sermons, um, you can do that too. But the center of our text today is is this passive voice imperative. It's a commandment in the passive voice. It's always hard to to do passive voice commandments. Let something be done to you. Let something happen. Receive a thing. right? And that's what Paul says. Be filled. And the word he uses is the Greek word en or in. In the spirit. Be filled in the spirit. Quite a bit different than be filled with the spirit. If you give it a little bit of thought. And uh, this Greek preposition, en, is everywhere in the New Testament. Paul uses it over 120 times. I think 121 times in Ephesians. He uses it twice in the first verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. A location, in a place. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. We actually aren't entirely sure what that one means. Is it faithful in the object of Christ? Or is it faithful as members and participants of Christ Jesus? And Paul will use this expression, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, throughout that opening uh, chapter, throughout the book. It describes what our life is like in Christ. It is a very powerful preposition. Out of 120 uses, 43 of them, by my rough count, refer to being in God, in the Spirit, or in Christ. A third of the time, Paul, in this sermon, in this exhortation, uses the word in. He's talking about us being in God. The fullness of God being in us. Think of that. That's quite a focus, isn't it? Would that all of our preaching was that focused on God and Christ in the church today. And we need to understand what Paul is teaching us when he commands us to be filled in the Spirit. The Spirit is not the content. Let me state my thesis here. The Spirit is not the stuff that fills it up. The Spirit isn't the water in the pool. The Spirit is the bringer of the content. The Spirit is not the content. He is the conduit. He is the instrument by which God is filling the church. The charismatic movement, I believe, has taken a wrong turn. And has taken the church over the last 100, 150 years in the wrong direction. 
Viewing the spirit as some life force or power like you plug into an electric supply and he infuses us. And that was really spirit-filled worship, right? That was a spirit-filled praise band. That was a spirit-filled time of prayer. And it's left us pursuing the instrument as the end. But the end is Christ. The end is God. Yes, the spirit is God. So I, I get that there's some ambiguity here, but, but when Paul uses this expression, in the Spirit, he's talking about living in the sphere of the Spirit, living in the realm of the Spirit, living in this place and in this community as though it were a beachhead of the new creation, conquering this old world, fallen in sin and death. This is D-Day plus one. And we have maybe a quarter mile in from the surf at Normandy. But this is the kingdom of heaven. And so we live and dwell in the spirit. And he says you need to be filled in the spirit. So this is what we're going to be looking at today. How we live this out. How practically we can fulfill this passive voice commandment. First I want to look at how he frames this up in verse 15. Look carefully how you walk because the days are evil. I'm alighting a little bit there, but last week we saw how how Paul drew upon themes from Isaiah's prophecy to talk about God's people coming back from the Exodus, coming back to the Holy Land, to a new creation, a new temple, as it were. And this, this hymn, this song that he compiles from Isaiah, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It introduces this whole section. It's a, it's a hinge. It concludes what goes before. And it introduces what he's going to say today. Wake up. Like he says in Romans 13, our law text today. Know what time it is. The day is dawned. We're living in the new creation. And this quote speaks of Christ is the light that is shining in and through believers. As that holy tabernacle in the Old Testament was filled with the glory of God. And a brilliant light shone out of it. So we too, brothers and sisters, shine with the light of our Savior. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is the language of wisdom. Classic language seen all throughout the ancient world. There are two paths. There's the wise way and the foolish way. Wisdom literature, the first eight chapters of the book of Proverbs, a father's instruction to his son, probably a prince in the royal court. Don't get pulled off the path. There's Lady Folly. She's calling out to you from the side streets. Maybe she has uh, the metaphor here of a prostitute, right? Hey, turn down this way. I got some goods for you. I got some stuff for sale. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's sensual pleasures. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's power. Folly calls to us. She allures us. But she's a deceiver. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast. Till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. This isn't just for boys. This is for girls, too. And now, O sons, O daughters, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. 
we can put this in terms of, of legislation, say, the wages of sin is death. But this is a much more beautiful, poetic, powerful thing, right? You don't want to walk in the way that leads you to the house of death. Paul opens this section with this command. Look carefully how you walk. The, the imperative verb here is look. Use your eyes. In this light of Christ, in the new day that is dawned, you can see. And look carefully. Because the light of the new day is gone in our hearts. We can do this, brothers and sisters. We can discern. We can determine. We can hear God's word because we have new hearts. The new birth enlightens us and empowers us. Now the Reformed tradition, uh, especially in the 17th century among the Puritans, has a reputation for caring a great deal about God's law. Perhaps too much. Perhaps too careful about parsing all uh, the fine aspects. But brothers and sisters, it's important for us to understand that this is not in our tradition a legalistic impulse. This isn't an impulse born of belief that the law is some source of life or deliverance in and of itself. This is a law and gospel impulse. We do not teach that we are saved by keeping God's law, but rather we are declared righteous on the count of Christ's perfect obedience to that law. It is our impulse to live our lives, however, in obedience to Paul's command here, to looking carefully. The gospel has the power to make all things new. We may now live in the light of that new creation. One Puritan, William Twiss, who served as the prolocutor, that's a good word, you can look it up later today, the moderator of the Westminster Assembly, where our, the Westminster Confessions were written, was once asked, why are you so precise in the words, in the way you run our assembly? Why are you so particular? And he is reported to have said, because I serve a precise God. We don't need to be ashamed or embarrassed that we serve a holy God who has revealed himself fulsomely to us, has revealed the way of life. Paul's telling us to look carefully. The freedom of the gospel does not beget a sloth or a sloppiness in our Christian living. The law is a faithful guide. The gospel does not create antinomians. That's a falsehood. That's a caricature. That's a slur against the gospel. It doesn't cause us to toss God's law out. It it opens our eyes to what it means for the first time. In the freedom of Christ, we are set free to trumpet the beautiful holiness of our God, knowing that we can strive, though we will always fall short, though we will make tiny progress, as our catechism says, and yet we will always be forgiven. We can always come and confess and receive the absolution of the merits of Christ that covers us. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sins. He doesn't see our shortcomings. He sees a perfect son who's fulfilled his law better than he could have commanded it. Christ, we'll read in a few verses, verse 27 of chapter 5, gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her. Christ died not just to save us by the skin of our teeth, but to make us holy. He died that he could wash us and cleanse us with his blood as he has done in baptism. He died that he could present us in splendor without spot or wrinkle, without blemish. He is making us perfectly holy, slowly, painfully, surely, carefully conformed to the image of God. Praise God for that promise. 
in all of our shortcomings, in all of our failures. Praise God. I hope you long for glory. (laughs) I hope you long for a day when you could converse with your heavenly father without distraction. I hope you long for a day when you could take a perfect Sabbath rest once and for all. I hope you long for that day. We need to make the best use of the time for the days are evil. That's the motivation Paul gives here. He's saying, wake up, sleepy head. It's time. The King James translation, you're probably all familiar with it. Redeem the time. Redeem the time. The, this is the same word that's used for our redemption. And, and the Greek word is so evocative, so powerful. It's, it's out of the marketplace. Buy that thing out of the marketplace. Take it home. Redeem it. We have to buy back our time. The prophet Amos uh, describes the sins and the darkness of God's people in chapter 5. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, you who take a bribe, you turn aside the needy at the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. That's what it means that the days are evil. How do you buy back the time? What does it cost? Well, one practical application, brothers and sisters. Uh, We live in a day of great abundance. Uh, You might be struggling to pay your rent. I know. I I know life is hard. I know we work hard. But thinking of human history, (laughs) we have more stuff, more wealth in the West, in America, than 99.9% of people that have lived on the face of this planet. This is not to be heard as being a scold or a nag. But one of the greatest things that we are tempted to do is to luxuriate in our abundance. We're tempted to do nothing, to waste time. I waste time. I waste a lot of it. (laughs) The world, the flesh, and the devil, and the devil's technology have thrown up more distractions than can be counted. It's always easy. Jesus says, right? Pick the log out of your own eye before you pick the speck out of dust out of your neighbor's eyes. The right parents can see how their children waste time. It's easy for us to see how other people waste time. But then we are tempted, right? We are allured by the pleasures of the world, the flesh. Now, hear me right. I'm not saying that it's bad to take a break or to rest. That's what the Sabbath is. That's what the Lord's Day is. But what does God's commandment say? What does the Sabbath commandment say? Six days you shall work. It's a long week. Six days you shall work. And then you take your rest in the Lord. And that's a rest for body and for soul. Hebrews, the author to Hebrews says, we must pay must closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We neglect our salvation, brothers and sisters, each and every day. It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to those who heard. The author continues in chapter 2. And he says, God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Paul will close this letter by reminding us that we are in a spiritual battle. Right? The world is not neutral about the Christian faith. The world is acidic to the fellowship of the church. The world thinks that our means of grace are folly and foolishness. The world thinks that uh, 50, 60, 70 people sitting in a room listening to a guy talk is the biggest waste of time on a Sunday morning. You could be brunching somewhere. You could be in bed. You could be on vacation. Do not neglect so great a salvation. We redeem the time by investing it wisely. By acknowledging that the days are evil and short. 
We live life as saints. And it is so vastly different than the life lived by the sons of disobedience. That's the first thing we can recognize. Being a Christian isn't like a minor tweak. I do something a little different on Sunday mornings than most of my colleagues at work. No, it should change everything. The gospel should change everything. And more than anything, Peter writes in this way. He talks about our good works that are seen by the world. But Peter says, be always ready with a reason for the hope that is within you. When you are asked about it. Do we live in hope? Do we live in joy in a broken, sad, tragic world? In the light of a heavenly hope. The way of the wicked will perish. This path of good and evil, the two paths of wisdom in the scriptures, it's not minor shades of gray. Now, I know there are a lot of ethical issues that are quite ambiguous and gray. Wisdom literature testifies to that. But the big framing here, brothers and sisters, is oil and water. There are two ways you can go. And be on your guard. Look carefully. And this is the spirit. I'll close this section, uh, this first point of my sermon, of what we read for our law text this morning. Paul says the same exact thing in different words to the Romans. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What does that mean? It means that as Jesus told the parable of, of the maids with their lanterns, right? Keep trimmed. Stay awake. Be alert. There is nothing now in God's great plan of redemption between us today and his return. <laughs> Could happen on the way home. Could happen this minute. Nothing. The Old Testament saints were waiting for a Messiah. We have come. He's come. We're waiting for his return. The consummation of all things. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Cast off the works of darkness. Paul has used the same language in Ephesians. Put on the armor of light. It's a battle. So prepare yourself. Now, that Romans text, he also talks about uh, the daytime and the nighttime, right? It's under the cover of darkness that people do wicked things, debauched things, when they don't think anyone's looking or seeing. Drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality. And so he likewise goes the same way in developing this contrast in Ephesians. When he says, therefore, uh, verse 18 rather, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. Be filled in the Spirit. Paul fleshes out the distinction between wise and unwise walking by way of contrasts. And the opposite of being foolish is understanding the will of the Lord. In verse 10, it said that the children of light can discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And here he says again, understand what the will of the Lord is. Wisdom tells us, the first rule of wisdom, according to Proverbs, is get wisdom. Don't live life by your own lights. And that's what Paul is saying here. Look to God's instruction. Look to His light as the light of your feet. And in verse 18... This verse about drunkenness, Paul is quoting Proverbs 23. You might struggle to see that quotation because he's quoting the Greek version, which differs a little bit from the Hebrew. But Proverbs 23, 31 in the Greek says, Do not get drunk on wine, but keep company with righteous men and keep their company in your travels. For if you let your eyes settle in your bowls and in your cups, you will thereafter walk around more naked than a staff. Paul's prohibition here is not on the drinking of alcohol, as the source text in Proverbs tells us. Both the Old and New Testament is clear that that wine can be a blessing, that it can cheer the heart. 
Drinking wine in moderation is not only permissible, but in often many cases valuable. But Proverbs explains what drunkenness is. Letting your eyes settle in your bowls and in your cups. Focusing on that feeling. Focusing on that release, that protection, that comfort that you draw from your liquor. From the stimulant or whatever the drug is of choice. The problem of drunkenness is the result. Debauchery. It is the loss of self-control. It is no longer looking to God's law. No longer looking to a wise voice or colleague. No longer traveling with righteous ones as Proverbs says. But looking to yourself. To what your feelings dictate in the moment. The profligate, profligate living of the prodigal son. Is described with this same term. Debauchery. Drunkenness deadens your ability to discern. And it is a fitting foil or contrast to being filled by the Spirit. Because what does the Spirit do? The Spirit knits us into a community. The Spirit unites us in Christ. He is the instrument of our feeling, as I said earlier. He is the one who is building us up as a holy temple. A dwelling place for our God. The Spirit keeps us in Christ. And as we saw in chapter 3, we are strengthened by the Spirit so that we may know the love of Christ. And Paul says, be filled to all the fullness of God. The Spirit seals us and unites us to the body. He is the Spirit of knowledge and revelation. So we may know and discern God's will. These are all ways Paul speaks earlier chapters of Ephesians. He creates the unity of the Spirit, chapter 4, and the bond of peace between brothers in Christ. That's the Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. Now, grammatically, you all knew I was going to get to grammar again. Grammatically, this passive command to be filled by the Spirit or in the Spirit is followed by four uh, subsidiary uh, participles, four, four verbs that are active, that become the things we do to be filled by the Spirit. The four active participles addressing one another. And I'm going to take as a unit singing and making melody. Giving thanks and submitting to one another. And we're going to take in closing each one of these four briefly in turn in our time remaining. But note how the focus is on the corporate activity of the church. Ephesians is the epistle of the church. And Paul is saying here, address one another, submit to one another. The spirit is sanctifying the body and works powerfully through our corporate times of worship. Using the public ministry of worship as a time in which we might be filled with the fullness of God's love and grace. One another occurs at the beginning and the end. And the final item, submitting to one another, is another one of these hinge verses, because then Paul's going to talk about submission between wives and husbands, between children and parents, between servants and masters. Paul's going to talk about how this one another submission works itself out in concrete relationships within the household. Key family relations. Now we might think of a servant master as being mostly out in the world. But since we know that households were baptized, he's probably talking about household servants. So these are all relationships in the church where we submit to one another. We'll get to submission as the last of this list. But I'll take these first two, and they're closely related. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In the Old Testament temple, 
Levitical singers were called to provide music and song fitting for the house of the Lord. Uh, We read in Psalm 95, it's our call to worship today. Psalm 81, right? How important it is as we come to the festival. And there would be probably the most professional music that any Israelite would ever hear in their life. Right? They didn't have the pods in their ears. They didn't have recorded music. Probably very few who had the skill or the wealth to have instruments and play music. That was a royal thing. And when you went to God's royal house, you heard music. You know how amazing that can be to hear live music. These were professional choristers, professional musicians. And in the new church, the new creation temple fulfills that. We're not less than that glory. We are more than that glory because we're filled by the spirit. And we are all called and commanded to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The first thing to note here is that our singing isn't just our, our ecstatic expression, right? It's not something that we do to, to cheer ourselves up or to get happy. Our singing is an address to one another. We're praying to God and we're praying to each other. We're filling our hearts and our minds with the words of scripture when we're singing psalms. With godly words when we're singing other hymns. And the point of our singing is not to stir up emotion. That might happen. Song does that wonderfully, powerfully. Song helps us memorize wonderfully, powerfully. But the point of our singing is to drive the word of God and the spirit of praise into our very being through repetition and memorization and beauty. And it is other focused. So often the ecstatic, charismatic, spirit filled Christian is chasing a feeling or an experience. They're looking inside. But we're commanded here to address one another. To be other focused. That's the definition of love. We've already said that in this series, right? To love one another. You might be one of these people who doesn't have a very strong voice. You feel a little awkward. It doesn't matter. Sing out joyfully. You're encouraging one another. You're speaking God's word to one another. Now, I don't plan to address what this list means, these terms, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, beyond noting that that there is a debate in the Christian church and in the Reformed tradition over exclusive psalmody. Should we sing only psalms in worship? And many point to this and say, no, clearly not, because we should sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, The counter to this uh, point that is then made is that each one of these Greek terms, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, appear in the titles and headings of psalms in the Psalter. They are all different types of inspired music songs that we find in the Psalter. This verse doesn't decide that issue, and I'm not going to speak to that issue here. Suffice it to say that in our federation, we embrace and celebrate the singing of psalms. Our church order says, the 150 psalms shall have the principal place in the singing of the churches. Hymns which faithfully and fully reflect the teaching of the scripture as expressed in the three forms of unity or confessions may be sung provided they are approved by the consistory, the local elders and pastors. Our whole hymnal has been approved not only by our consistory but by all of our churches in a meeting of our synod. Song is an element of worship and the content of our song should be overseen as carefully as the content of our preaching. You get to participate in that, brothers and sisters. I choose these songs carefully. Whoever preaches chooses the music carefully to reflect and to support the preached word. Second, 
to point out that this singing and making melody should be to the Lord and from the heart. It should be heartfelt and sincere and not merely lip service. So I encourage you, do not neglect your salvation. Do not neglect your calling to sing to one another, to address one another. Learn the songs in our book. Memorize one or two. Pick one. Pick a favorite. Love them. If you have requests, let me know. I like singing songs that you all like to sing if they are fitting for our service. Celebrate and join us on our hymn sings. We have a wonderful time about once a quarter on Thursday nights for our hymn sings. Second subject here, second heading, thing that we do so that we might be filled by the Spirit is giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderfully Trinitarian, right? Be filled by the Spirit by giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Guilt, grace, and gratitude is our big picture understanding of how we come to know the comfort of the gospel. We know we are sinners. We know what God has done to save us. And we live lives of gratitude. And that's what Paul is teaching here. And this continues a priestly theme. There were priestly sacrifice of thanks. The priest would offer up thanks on behalf of all the people. That was the calling of the Levites of that, an entire tribe. But now we are a kingdom of priests. We are all given this privilege. And we do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father through him, even with the prayer of thanksgiving. We know that we've received all good gifts from heaven. As James says, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We know by our doctrine of providence that hard things come from heaven. When our catechism teaches us that the value of God's doctrine, of our understanding of God's providence, is that we can be thankful and we can also be hopeful. And we look to him who provides all. Do you give thanks for everything? I find it really interesting. I listen from time to time to sort of secular sources on mental health and wellness. I find it very interesting that the secular world has really come down around to the idea of gratitude. You know, you'll hear it in, in, in the yoga studio, right? Gratitude, gratitude, it's, ha- it's a key to happiness. And it's absolutely true. The secular world steals from God's truth all the time, right? All truth is God's truth. Christian gratitude is different in a kind of a key way. Thanksgiving implies giving thanks to someone. And gratitude to the world spirit, gratitude to the cosmos, doesn't convey the same power. We want to give thanks to the one who deserves our thanks. And that is the creator from him, the giver of every good gift. And this brings us to the final uh, way in which we may, and we are commanded, to be filled by the Spirit. The final means by which the Spirit fills us is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Out of reverence for Christ. This is one of those crucial hinge verses in Paul's argument. Some people say, well, does this, this belong to this section or to the next section? And the answer is both, because it serves as a hinge between the two sections. It concludes this list, and it's dependent upon the verb of being filled by the Spirit. But then when Paul talks about husbands and wives, a hard passage for many in our culture today, when Paul talks about children and parents, another hard passage for different reasons in our culture today, and masters and servants... He's still talking about being filled by the Spirit. And really, he's still addressing the church. 
which is also important for us to grasp. Grammatically, he is opening the door to a life that's understood by submitting to God through submitting to various people he brings into our lives. Today, our world operates from the assumption of a sort of egalitarian, flat way of living. Absolute equality that flattens all relationships and leaves no room whatsoever for authorities or hierarchies in our lives. Paul's command to submit to one another is qualified by various concrete relationships. I'm going to quote Steve Baugh, who I think is helpful on this, my Greek professor, a commentator on Ephesians. He says, Paul's general idea of proper submission, however, is explained and illustrated through particular examples of family relationships he develops through chapter 6, verse 9. Submission is not absolute for any party. No one party submits always everywhere. But an individual submits in some ways to some people and not in other ways to others. The only absolute rule for Christian behavior, which is to guide everyone at all times, is love. As a general guideline, believers are to submit to one another by considering others and their concerns more highly than themselves. Philippians chapter 2. In mutual love and service and they are to submit to governing authorities in the church and in the world. Submission is a bad word today. Because when we think of submission, we think of oppression. Our world thinks of oppression. But Christ showed us the way to submit in love. He submitted to the Father. He humbled himself by obedience to the point of death. He submitted himself in love for us. And note how this is qualified. All of our submission is to be entered into and sustained in the fear and the reverence of Christ. The word is fear. Remember wisdom, and Paul started by looking back to Proverbs. What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. But now we know who the Lord is, New Testament brothers and sisters. We know that the Lord is Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he has manifested, enfleshed the way of submission. Just as the beginning of wisdom starts with the Lord, so our beginning of wisdom is to look to Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Put others first. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. For you were called to freedom, brothers, Paul writes to the Galatians. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray that the Spirit would fill us with the glory of our creator and maker and remake us after his image merciful god we desire now that rest and nourishment that you alone can provide we have been longing for this feast and we pray that you would help us open our mouths that we might receive the finest of wheat the sweetest of honey in christ alone our lord and savior of kings Help us redeem the evil days. And we pray that you would come quickly, Lord, and deliver us from this world filled with death and sorrow and sadness. And bring your victory over death and your resurrection to the whole of the cosmos, defeating that final enemy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.